Welcome to episode 88 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I'm a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So today we're continuing our deep dive into children's publishing series. This time we're going to delve into uh, some more of the craft aspects of it, specifically voice. And um, we're going to really mostly focus on middle grade versus young adult today, because again, that's what Kelly and I are the most familiar with, but also because... I do think that there is a, an, a difference in voice between those two categories, and I, I want to get at a little bit what the difference is So, to help you guys when you're querying or pitching to sort of figure out what category your book is. And it, it, it does often come down to voice, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would you say are the hallmarks of a middle grade voice? Oh, that's not fair. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, yes. The hallmarks of a middle grade voice. I think that in middle grades, regardless of genre, right? So this can be middle grade fantasy or contemporary or sci-fi or what have you. Um, I think that there are a few common traits that middle grades all share that fall within the realm of what we mean when we talk about voice. And I think that middle grades are often clever or witty. There is um, a kind of cleverness to them. And it's, it's a cleverness that is... It's a really difficult balance to strike, I think. Sometimes I see a lot of projects where people are obviously shooting for that kind of cleverness and they're missing the mark wildly. Um, I also think there's something kind of timeless and classic and charming about middle grade voices, even really contemporary ones, even new ones. They have this kind of feel to them that I can't describe as anything other than classic or timeless. Am I making any sense at all? Yeah, I I would say there is an element of whimsy to a middle grade mm. voice. Um, again, regardless of, as Kelly said, regardless of genre, it could be a straight up contemporary or even a historical. There's an aspect of whimsy to a middle grade voice even the ones that are quite serious and are dealing with heavier topics, there is an element of maybe even playfulness playfulness to mm. the text. Um, middle grade, and obviously middle grade is a little bit broad because that category is anywhere kind of readers from 8 to 12 really sort of fall into middle grade. On the upper end of middle grade, um, you get a little bit more earnest, I think. But Mm. on the lower end of middle grade, a little bit younger is where you kind of get that whimsical quality. So the, at least Kelly and I always say that the younger you write, the harder it is. Um, because, and I don't know about you, is I, when I used to see 
a lot of manuscripts that said that they were YA or middle grade, and it it didn't read true. Mm-hmm. Because it is a lot harder to write for a younger audience than people think. It's not simplifying the language. It's not... I think uh, other times, too, when I see some people trying to write middle grade, that they focus like, it's cutesy. They're, I think they're aiming for whimsy, but land kind of in this awkward, uncanny valley that's cute. Yes. And what ends up happening when you miss these marks for middle grade in particular is that you become incredibly condescending. Mm-hmm. And it's not what you want to be doing, certainly. And middle grade readers don't want to be condescended to. I think, JJ, I think you said last week in our podcast that was kind of introing these topics, you know, kids will know. You cannot, you know, you you cannot pull the wool over their eyes and they are not going to suffer any fools. I believe I quoted him before, but Philip Pullman always said that the children had the finest bullshit meter. Mm -hmm. And that the instant you lose their attention or interest... They won't give you. They won't give you the benefit of a doubt. An adult will give you a benefit of a doubt, but children won't. Um, mm-hmm. This is why it's harder to write for children than it is for adults. I don't know why people who don't write children's books are always so condescending about children's fiction. Like, when are you going to write a real book? And I'm like, hmm, let's see you try writing one for children and see how easy yeah. you find it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very quickly. Um, to land into this place of condensation, not condensation, that's liquid, <laughs> but f- forms on the outside of your glass. <laughs> oh, you guys, I don't know. It's been a week. Um, it's really easy to become condescending when writing for children. If you think that, you know, that you're better than, than them or that you think you need to talk down to them. Mm-hmm. Um, middle grade stories are very clever and are very, um, explore a vast array of complex and nuanced topics. Um, middle grade doesn't mean, you know, simplified. It doesn't mean, you know, uncomplicated. Um, a lot of middle grade stories are very complicated and complex and deal with really weighty themes, but they have a lightness to them, even when dealing with dark things. I do think if we want to delve a little bit into the craft side of things, I do think that light lightness or playfulness does come from the prose. And a lot of middle grade can have wordplay, um, punniness, uh, obviously, the best example, recent example that I can think of is a series of unfortunate events. But even there's kind of a tradition that goes back. There is um, the Phantom Tollbooth. Um, there is a book called Unlondon by China Mieville, uh that I like. Or even Alice in Wonderland. Um, these are old and they don't, wouldn't fall into the categories of middle grade anymore because they're older. But like... There's a there's a sort of textual playfulness, and children, I think, when they're younger, do delight in that. I don't know why people don't like puns. I love puns. I never grew out of my childlike delight of puns. Um, but a, a lot, of, at least I remember for me, when I was coming across those things at that age, I remember once I understood the pun, it became funny to me, and I felt like I felt smart for having figured it out 
what the pun mm. was. Um, and there's a, there is, there's a sense of playfulness that comes with it that I think is very difficult to do, uh, without getting condescending, as Kelly said, but also without sounding like you're trying too hard. And there is a fine line and a subtle balance between playfulness and saccharine. Mm-hmm. Uh, because here's the thing, too, is that even if the text is playful, the emotions are true. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think, sometimes what people miss when they write for a middle grade audience. That yes, even though it's a younger audience, you have to treat their feelings the way you would treat an adult's feelings. You would have to treat the way they see the world. It's actually like dealing with children in real life. You don't want to con- yeah. You don't want to condescend to children in real life. You want to treat them and their feelings and their thoughts as valid with dignity. With dignity. That's what. That's really what it is. You want to give children a sense of dignity. Otherwise they will know that you're talking down to them and they'll just check out and won't listen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so then let's briefly move into YA before we kind of delve a little bit deeper into the more of the craft aspects of this. So what would you think is a hallmark of a YA voice? I think um, the hallmark of a YA is ultimately intimacy um, intimacy with your protagonist, intimacy in that protagonist's relationship, just a really close, um, examination of that person, their world, their feelings, their place in it, um, in a, in a more immediate sense. I think when I tend to think of middle grade voice, I think of them as like a step back or a step removed. And I think of YA as being really right up close, even if the point of view is, you know, first or third or varies, you know, across categories, middle grade YA, whatever. But the feeling that's invoked um, for YA is much closer for me than for middle grade. Yeah, I always kind of described it as emotional claustrophobia. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's very, very immediate. Um, Also, YA, even if the character is snarky, the emotions are earnest. Mm -hmm. There is, there is very, I can't really think of very many YA with sort of any sort of ironic voice to it. Um... No, you know, even your most disaffected YA protagonists or your, your most closed off or reserved YA protagonists really are roiling with vulnerability underneath that. It's like a defense mechanism that they're closed off, you know, but there, there's so much vulnerability beneath the surface. Um, It's like Holden, what's his face from Catcher in the Rye? Holden Caulfield. Yeah. Yeah. Even though he's trying to affect distance in a sort of self-irony, you can tell that that's not working for him. Yeah. <laughs> he desperately wants connection, real mm-hmm. connection with other people. And that's the, really, that's the thing about young adult is that it, you know you can have a checklist of what these voices will fulfill, but the skill that comes 
from a writer is able to give you multiple layers. It's not just simply the text as is. There, it's you know Holden's voice is balanced out with his actions, and they illuminate different parts about him. You know, I still think of that scene in the hotel where he is basically, I think, in there with an escort or a prostitute, and he just wants some connection. He just wants to talk. Um, and that's all revealed in, yeah. in in his point of view, how he sees the world, how mm. he reacts to the world, even if even if how he's telling it to you is not that earnest or straightforward, mm-hmm. his actions will give it away. Right. Well, I always think of, too, um, The Pigman by mm-hmm. Paul Zendel, where John and Lorraine are like, outsiders and the way that they befriend the pig man is essentially to like they're making fun of him they're not they're Mm -hmm. not um sincere in their initial efforts to befriend him but they end up spending more time with him and that friendship becomes genuine and there's a moment for the two of them where like they're they decide to dress up and like get all fancy and Lorraine walks down the stairs like after her like makeover. It's like a white dress and like a she's got that white in her dress hair. Right? This is like seared into my memory because up until this moment in the book it's just been these two teenagers who are like, screw our parents, screw our school, everything sucks, no one understands who we are. You know, we don't even understand each other. And, like, that just all falls away as he watches her come down the stairs. And it's just like, ah, even now it makes me like, oh, my God. Because <laughs> it's so vulnerable and so um, so real and true in that moment. That no matter how disaffected these teenagers have pretended to be, that that was the armor that they put on to protect themselves from um, opening up to other people. I agree that vulnerability is kind of a key thing in YA that you don't get in an adult voice. Uh, That emotional immediacy in the text does lend itself to vulnerability in in the voice. Because, again, we mentioned in last episode about uh, books that are set in high school or have teenage protagonists that don't really read like a YA novel. And I said that that's because there's some narrative distance, you know, that there's often a a sense of an adult perspective looking back, but that's also the lack of vulnerability. Like somebody is recounting this story to you, but the emotional immediacy and feeling that immediate sympathetic response to that vulnerability is, is not there. And that to me is really what distinguishes an adult book from a, a YA book, even if the content is the same, even if the storyline's the same, or the you know the characters are the same, there's it's the way the story is treated and told to you that really makes it for teens versus adults. Um, so then let's go into a little bit more craft-based discussions about voice. And I've thought about this before. I've thought about and I think we've done a podcast about voice and what we think constitutes voice Mm -hmm. um, and how to develop voice, all that sort of a thing. And of course, a huge part of voice is individual to the author. Like you wouldn't really be able to replicate it. I mean, you kind of can, you can sort of ape other people's style, but that's not your voice Mm -hmm. and a voice. And I, I thought about this the other day, a voice is very, very, very careful thought uh, diction. 
word choice, the words a character chooses to use to describe the world that they're in, to describe their feelings, to describe their actions, that is incredibly illuminating of, of the sort of person that your character is and, and how you choose to tell the story and the words that you use is, is a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to middle grade versus YA, uh, voice, at least for me, the voice of the storyteller or the author is stronger to me than the voice of the character in YA, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes, it does. I think that in middle grade, the voice of the author is what's coming through. And in YA, it's the voice of the character that comes through, and it's the voice of the character that we connect to. Whereas in middle grade, mm-hmm. it's the voice of the author that we are delighting in, actually. You know, that we are with this author as they're telling us and letting the story unfold about a younger person. Or at least that's that's what it was. That's what it is for me personally. Now, what's the difference between an authorial voice and a character voice? Good question. So a couple of different things, you know, this is when you get into points of view and all of this stuff, um, you can have different kinds of narrators. Like if it's third person, you can have different kinds of narrators. You can have the kind of narrator where the narrator is themselves a character, um, who isn't the protagonist, but is a character telling you the story, injecting their um, interpretations into things. You know, I think um, Series of Unfortunate Events is a really good example of that. Lemony Snicket, the quote-unquote author of those books, right down to his dedications, uh, Beatrice, Dearest, Darling, Dead, uh, and so on and so forth. As he's telling you those stories, Lemony Snicket is a character in that world. Um, And so that's one kind of narrator or authorial voice that you can have. But I think more traditionally, when we think of the authorial voice, it's the narrator not as a character, but as, how do you explain that? Like, in Harry Potter, it's all third person. There's a narrator, but I don't get the sense that the the narrator is a character telling you the story. Right. more of an omniscient right point of view or um because a lot of older books a lot of the books that we had to read for school um tended to have an authorial presence even if they are they themselves are not characters in the book sometimes Mm -hmm. the author would directly call it out and say that you know and be like the, the direct address to the reader, that they are calling attention to the fact that they are telling the story. Or you had somebody like Jane Austen, where it's clearly mm. her point of view about these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of the way she would describe, like, Lady Catherine, or uh, from Pride and Prejudice, or um, even the opening line. It's a very distinct point of view. None of the characters really have this thought you know it's a truth universally acknowledged that all men you know yeah possession of a fortune must be in want of a wife right that's not 
any of the characters' points of view, really. It's clearly Jane Austen's point of view, um, and there's a little wryness there. Um, and she's using that voice actually to make fun of Mrs. Bennet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's this, like, the fine level of irony there. And even though Jane Austen herself is not a character in her books, there is her voice that runs throughout the whole thing. And in fact, all of the characters are sort of filtered through us through Jane's point of view. Uh, it's not particularly earnest or direct in that way. Versus something like Twilight, which is, there's no separation between Bella and whoever is telling Bella's story. It is Bella telling the story. And that's what is lends Is Twilight not first person? It is first person. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. No, it's, it's, I said, there's no, there's no separation between Bella and whoever is telling Bella's story because adult books can be in first person and still have a sense of distance. Prep Mm -hmm. is in first person and there is still a sense of distance in that book. But there, that, I think that like emotional immediacy that there is no separation, separation between the character and the storyteller lends itself to that immersive quality mm-hmm. that YA has that I don't think really any other category has that sort of same immersive quality to it. Um, I, I'm i trying to... Because even in third person, there's not a lot of books in YA that I can think where their authorial voice is distinct from the character's voice. Because even in third person, if you have like a rotating cast and you've got a couple of different characters and they all have their own chapter, mm-hmm. it's still told from the character's point of view. Right. It's third person, but it's still the character's point of view. And there's really no authorial presence there. Yeah. Yeah. I think the closest one I can think of is I get a little bit of that in um, Three Dark Crowns. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit more of that kind of authorial narrator type of thing, but not much. It's still really close. There, are, I think there are... There, I can't really think of too many YA, and it's also what I I tend to be thrown out of books where there is no emotional closeness. Mm-hmm. If if I'm expecting a young adult book, and the emotional immediacy is not there, and I feel like the book is kind of keeping me at arm's length, I don't feel as a, I don't I don't immerse myself into that book as quickly as I would another YA book. Mm-hmm. And but middle grade is different because. I, I, I do find middle grade immersive, but in a different way. It is because I'm remember. Well, here it is for me. I'm remembering and experiencing my middle grade years at a remove, whereas mm-hmm. I am reliving <laughs> my teenage years in YA. Yes. That's kind of what it is for me. Yes. I do think that for me personally, when I am seeing projects come through my query inbox and I'm reading requested manuscripts, I do find that it is more common for middle grade projects to struggle with voice than it is for young adult. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. If I only agree. because it's easy to get that emotional closeness, even just by doing first person, like you can still fail at it. It's voice is still difficult and complicated and you can have a voice that isn't as interesting as it could be. Like it might be there, but, <laughs> but it might not be great. Like there are still struggles within YA, but I think nailing down the very basic concepts of a recognizable voice that belongs to that category is significantly more difficult for middle grade writers or within the middle grade category, I should say, than it is for YA. Because I can almost count on like two hands the number of middle grades that I've seen that have been like, this has an incredible voice. It's very difficult. Like I said, the younger you go, the harder it is. Um, So then let's talk about projects that straddle a middle grade YA line. Say the protagonist is like 14, mm-hmm. you know, because I have seen them. That's like it. Mm-hmm. What would you do with a project like that? I don't know. I don't know. I think ultimately you have to start looking at other factors like the content, the plot, like what kind of a story is it thematically? Mm-hmm. And then kind of nudge it toward one or the other. Even some of the younger YAs that we talked about last time. We talked about like the Georgia Nicholson series, for example, is a really a good example of a younger YA. But that's still very much all about emotional immediacy. It's her diary, you know, mm-hmm. it's essentially um right there in, in all her emotions. <laughs> and uh and the thing that's brilliant about that too is that it's her diary. So she is writing down the things that happened to her and what she feels about them. But the brilliant thing about that book is that even though we are limited to her own recording of the things that happened to her, Louise Renison, the author, somehow manages to infuse the story with all these other things. Because like when we write in our diaries, we're writing for the audience of ourselves, right? And we're... Mm -hmm. We lie to ourselves all the time. And in those books, Georgia lies to herself all the time and tells herself she feels one way and tells herself that this is the way that things are. And yet we as readers know when she's doing that to herself, even though she's literally our only source of information. And it's brilliant. I don't know how she pulled it off, but it's so good. It's So much of it is how Georgia says she feels versus how she recounts a story to us or to herself in her diary, there is a disconnect there. And that's kind of when we know that she's lying. It's so good. And this is really what it comes down to in, in, in writing that the different levels you get, you know, the example I mentioned with Holden Caulfield and a catcher in the rye, there are things that he says, there are things that he does And the things that he says he does and feels. And they're not always the same thing. And a really good writer would be able to utilize those things in in context with each other to give us a fuller picture of what is happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the other thing. And that's kind of what I mean by when people think that writing for young people is simpler or simplistic. Is when you don't have the difference between how a character perceives themselves and how other people perceive the character and how the 
character actually is, all three of those things should be apparent to the reader, even if, and not actually spelled out to you. Um, that's really, to me, the mark of a good writer, the mark of somebody who is ready to be published, to somebody who is able to have that deafness of voice and and storytelling. Because a lot of times, and this was always something, you know, when I used to work in publishing, sometimes I would see manuscripts where the voice was almost there, just almost and that's kind of hard to explain unless you go through the entire manuscript line by line. But often that almost is really, it's just not three-dimensional enough, right? There isn't the, the aspect of this is what the character says they think, this is what the character actually thinks, this is what the character is doing that betrays what they actually think, etc., etc. There's all those things that you can get in a single paragraph from one character's point of view, and a skilled writer will be able to con to convey all of that. And somebody who just needs a little bit more time for their skills to develop and ripen, you know, it's often, I, I do often see books from people that they're clearly talented, but are not quite ready. There's like mm -hmm. a slight element of you just need to be in the oven a little bit longer. And I think... I think, in, in particularly for YA, there's a sense that it's a bunch of young people, you know, who get published all the time, and there are a lot of people who get who worry about being too old, which, I don't know, I was in my 30s when my first book came out, it's fine. I don't think anybody, I mean, I know I am old, but I don't think anyone calls me old. <laughs> um, and there is something to be said about the closer you are to your teenage years, the easier it is to get to exactly what it feels like mm -hmm. as a teenager. And it can work, especially when you have a book like Twilight that is so completely from Bella's point of view, you yeah. know, so completely and utterly from Bella's point of view that there is no need to have any of that extra depth to the writing of that book. I don't... Granted, like, I was not somebody who read Twilight as it was coming out. I only read Twilight, I think, after you were working at Writer's House. Yeah, we both, I think we both read them around the same time, and it was when the third book was published. It was when Eclipse came out. Right, so right. Breaking Dawn hadn't come out yet, but the first three books were out, and we passed them back and forth. <laughs> I... I well, the sort of storytelling that Twilight engages in, I can see why it's compelling, and I and I do point to it as this is the game changer in the business. It's not really my thing. Um, I struggled to finish Twilight <laughs> because this is also not what I felt like as a teenager. So for me, I'm just kind of like this is very, very, very foreign to me. I don't quite understand. Um, even though I even though I sense the emotional authenticity of it. It didn't uh -huh. resonate with me. And so I had a very difficult time finishing Twilight. And in fact, I didn't read the other books in the series. Um, but if I remember much, if I remember from Twilight, I don't think there is that sense of what Bella feels, what Bella thinks, what Bella says she feels versus... Hmm. I don't recall that really being there. No, I... My remembrance of that series, which I've only read once. Um, and I, 
was not a huge fan of the series. Um, but it, what I recall from reading those books is that it is very, um, a surface level is not the word that I want to use because I don't mean to make it sound shallow. It's not, but it's very, um, what Bella is feeling is what Bella is feeling. Like there Mm -hmm. is no contrary or complex or intersecting emotion there. Like it, like we're told how Bella feels and that's how Bella feels. Um, And so sometimes she's feeling complex things, but there aren't these layers of experience or feelings there. I think where it was the most complex for me was in the beginning when she didn't know what Edward felt about her. Because that felt very, very authentic and real to me, where here is somebody who acts a certain way, yet they seem to do other things that are it contradictory to the way they've previously acted or said things. And that sort of sense of confusion is very real. Um, and that, that felt real to me. Um, and also because you could tell that clearly he has an interest in her. You don't know what it is, um, yet, but that, that Edward has an interest in her. And so there's that level of complexity with her relationship with Edward, and he's kind of the only one, as far as I remember. I don't remember that level of complexity with many of the other characters there. What she feels about these characters ultimately is proven to be 100% accurate. That's the thing. It's not that Bella is mistaken about these characters or any that her impressions are false or they evolve or change. They are 100% accurate all the time. And so that's kind of what I think Kelly means, that there's no intersecting emotion or point of view there, even though the narrative is very close in Bella's point of view. Um, Because you can be that close in someone's head and still see that the way they are presenting themselves, like Georgia Nicholson, like Holden Caulfield, is still not quite in line with how they want to be perceived. Um, But I think, you know, a lot of... The closer you are to to your teenage years, the easier it is to get to that emotional immediacy because you feel everything so deeply. And if I look at my own writing from that time period, like my journals and blogs and whatever, there's that emotional claustrophobia and it's like utterly embarrassing to reread now. Oh, "Oh, God. God." It's so painful. I thought I was so smart. Uh, and I bet you in like 10 years, I'll read my first book and be like, Oh God, why? (laughs) Um, but like, I think there, there is that perception that YA particularly is really only written by young women and that's not true at all. And Mm. I do think sometimes that age does give you a better sense of how to tell a story. Um, what is the right way to tell a story for the story you are trying to tell? Um, so voice is often, it's it's really subtlety I'm looking for in a voice. You can have a very snarky voice, or you can have a very morose voice, you can have a very distinct voice, but subtlety is really what I think elevates just a voice into into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else that you want to talk about when it when it comes to the difference between... 
middle grade YA and really what voice is for you? What is voice specifically for you? Yeah, it's, I think for me, um, you know, regardless of what any textbook definition would be, but when I think of voice, I think of a feeling that the writing is evoking. I think of the musicality of the prose. I think a lot of stories with strong voices have a musicality to them. And I don't, I don't necessarily mean, you know, that it's all like lush and lovely and like music can come in all kinds of different forms. Um, and I mean the full range of, uh, that when I say musicality, but there is a quality to the prose, um, that is musical, that is rhythmic, that, um, evokes that, um, that, that sense. So it evokes a feeling, it has a musicality to it, um, and it feels, um, finished. I feel like voice is that finishing touch. It's the final thing that elevates something from being a good story to being a novel that feels real and um, tangible and, and um, it, it stands out. You know, it's hard, I think, to talk about for me because one, because I don't really write. So, you know, when I am working with clients or when I'm giving critiques, I can work with the material in front of me and I have something that I can point to and say, this is working, this isn't working, here's what we can do to improve the voice or, you know, whatever. Um, But talking about voice theoretically, when I don't have something to point to and I don't have my own experiences writing and crafting to draw on, feels kind of just like I'm waving my hands in the air and saying a lot of nonsense because it is, um, it is something that I just know when I see it, it's a quality and I don't necessarily know how to advise you or give a step-by-step like how to, um, in terms of just in general without having material in front of me to work from. Um, but it is, uh, it makes a book feel finished. It, it is just, I don't know. It just is. (laughs) I'm just waving my hands all over the place, which no one can see, but. I think what you said about musicality, I think does ring true. For me, a voice is something I can hear Mm. even as I'm reading it. I can hear this voice. I can hear the voice of the person. I've, I've mentioned this before. Uh, I don't remember if I've done it on this podcast or if I did it on like my Insta stories or something, but the concept of writing versus something like film. I have never been a visual writer. I don't see what I write. I had never been able to write that way. Um, and some people say, oh, I see what I write like a movie. And then I just write that down. I find that's fascinating because that's just simply not the way I work. Because there's the difference between a visual and prose 
is an issue of directness. You can put an image on screen and that is exactly what you're looking at. But if you were to actually just describe what you were seeing, it's really dull. There's no mm. emotion behind it. There's no feeling behind it. Because it's the way someone is describing something to you that you remember, that makes you able to see that image in your head. Um, and the, you know, the, the goal of writing is to evoke. Is yeah. really what it is, is to evoke and not necessarily to describe. So a lot right. of times, the thing that we had talked about purple prose before, it's almost an oxymoron to have something be purple, to have prose be purple. That's like saying music is purple. Um, because a lot of people, I think, get tripped up in trying to describe something to you as opposed to evoke something for you. When you're trying to describe something in the prettiest way possible, that's when it becomes purple. But when you're evoking something for someone, that's, that's different. That's when I think you can get into the lushness of someone's prose. Because writing is not that direct. You know, the way you describe a sunset, you can just be like, well, there's a, you know... The sky is kind of red, I guess, from the top to bottom. It gets a little bit darker as you go. You know, like that's like a very utilitarian way to describe a sunset for somebody. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, you can do that in a photograph or you can do that in a film image. But like you can't really do that in writing. Um, there's a there's it's a, and so I do think that there is an aural, as Kelly said, like A-U-R-A-L, aural element to writing. And so a musicality of a voice is, I can hear this person telling the story to me. Mm-hmm. That's really the distinctness of a voice is I can hear a person telling it to me. The point of view, how they are choosing to describe something, how they are choosing to talk about their emotions, if they talk about their emotions at all. Some people, like Katniss, as a character, that voice, as a, that character keeps everything close to the, what she really feels very, very close and she mm-hmm. often lies to herself, too, about what she's feeling. Um, but that doesn't mean she's not feeling anything. And that's her voice. And that's something I can hear as she's talking to me. Um, the The other thing about musicality is I think people really, really need... And Kelly and I, of course, are huge proponents of reading your work aloud. Um, but because when you don't... Because I, I read a book the other day. It's not out yet. Um, and I was just reading it for, for someone else. And I felt the voice was off and I couldn't quite figure out what the voice, why the voice was off until I read it aloud. And I was like, Oh, I know why the voice is off. It's because there's no variation or or difference in the sentence length or even sentence structure. Basically it's like an old, it's like an old spice commercial. Like, Hey ladies, look at me. Now look at this, look at this. Now look at that. Now you're here. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And now it's diamonds. Like (laughs) (laughs) great for a commercial, not necessarily. It's great when you can hear the person deliver it, but when you're reading it in prose, it's not quite the same. Um, Mm. and, and so that, that's really crucial for me when you can hear, someone say it aloud and um that's really what the what a hallmark of a voice is not not anything other than that like I can like I'm sitting with this person and they are telling me a story how they choose to tell the story what what points they choose to tell uh where they start the story where they end up 
how they get there, what they choose to hold back, all those things are elements of voice. And this kind of, again, comes back to diction. Your word choice. There are certain characters that wouldn't use this kind of a word. There are certain characters that would. Uh, that is dependent on where they grew up, how they grew up. Somebody who grew up poor versus somebody who grew up richer. Somebody who's, you know, there's so many elements that go into the voice of a character. And I, you know, I, I had initially trouble with the first couple of drafts of Guardians because I couldn't get the voice right. I didn't understand what it was that I couldn't quite get. Um, and it took me, it took me a while. Winter Song was not like that. The, the voice of that one just came right away and I just started writing. But the first Guardians book took a while because I had to rethink how this character saw the world and how this character related to the world. And once I figured that out, then the voice snapped into place, but it took a while. So it, it, it really is. It's, it's all small small details and that is very specific to each character that you're writing into each book that you're writing. So there really is no, like, these are the things you need to do to have a good voice in your book. It doesn't quite work like that. But I think there are some common elements, which is, again, diction, musicality, and characterization. Mm -hmm. So, and also because it's like, for me, anyway, my natural voice is actually not the voice I use to write my stories. The way you guys hear me talk on this podcast is not the voice that's in my books. Mm -hmm. This is my natural voice. And my natural voice also tends to be a little bit more arch, I think, or a little bit more ironic or self-aware. Uh, this is, I also, like, I love middle grade. Kelly, you know that I used to write middle grade before I wrote YA, uh, so I'm intimately acquainted. And honestly, sometimes middle grade is easier for me because it is actually, in fact, closer to the way I tell a story naturally. Um, so, it, you know, it, it does depend on the book, and it, it, I think a lot of this does come with practice. Any final thoughts on voice? No, I mean, I think... You know, I think that JJ, you really hit it on the head when you talk about evoking and that that's what writing does. And I think if you keep that in mind and you think about all of the things that you want to evoke, um, that will lead you closer to where you need to be. Um, so I really like that as a as a way of trying to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then let's move on. What have you been working on? What have I been working on? I attended a conference this past weekend, the Writer's Digest Writer's Workshop here in Minneapolis. Um, that was great. I got to teach a class on queries and listen to a lot of pitches and meet some wonderful people. So that was really fun. I am traveling for a lot more conferences coming up in April, so I'm getting everything squared away for those. Um, and then I am working on something with uh, one of my clients that, of course, I can't really talk about. I hope that someday I'll be able to talk about it, but uh, right now I can't, so working on that. <laughs> what about you? Still drafting? 
Yeah, well, I I fell behind because I was at a bachelorette this weekend. Um, so I'm still recovering because I'm old. A lot of the people at this bachelorette were younger than I am by several years. And uh, let me tell you, when you cross 30, those couple years make a huge difference. Um, so I am catching up on that. Uh, Mark and I are actually in the process of uh, moving soon uh, because when his residency comes to end, we'll be moving so today was mostly spent getting our house ready for photographers. So it's ready to go on the market. So in addition to trying to carve out time to revise, I am, I am, I am trying to get my house ready. Uh, thankfully, when I con Marie'd my house earlier this year, it made it a lot easier. To, <laughs> uh, let me. T oh, it was, it was. I was like, good job, me. I did it. Um, so that's what I've been working on. Uh, have you been mm -hmm. reading anything? Um, I am reading a couple of requested manuscripts at the moment. In terms of published books, I'm rereading um, The Princess Academy by Shannon Hale. Oh, I love those. They're so good. It's so lovely, yeah. Um, so I'm reading that and really enjoying it very much. And then I have so many books that I am on the wait list for at the library and I'm really impatient for them to come through. I keep waiting and checking. In fact, I'm going to check right now and see if anything has arrived. In theory, they're supposed to email me, but, um, do you feel this way? I have so many email accounts now that like checking my personal email account is just something that I never do. <laughs> I only have, I have two. To yeah. I have so many because of work and I've got one that forwards to my query inbox and then my agenting inbox for regular stuff. And then I've got, um, like email addresses for like parenting stuff and like just whatever. We have so many email addresses and now I just never check my personal. So I haven't checked my library list in a while. Yeah. I've got the girl King by Mimi. Yu is, uh, I'm two weeks out. They say from that. And there's a couple more here on my list, but no, nothing comes in. So yeah. What about you? What are you reading? I just started The Everlasting Rose, which is the second book. Uh, it's a sequel to The Bells by Danielle Clayton. Oh, yes. Um, I intended to read while I was flying for this bachelorette, but I uh, uh, did not end up doing that because <laughs> we were out dancing and swimming instead. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much what I'm, what I've been reading. What if I've read anything in the past couple of weeks? Um, no, I haven't read anything new. I have been rereading, um, let's see, what's the last thing here? I have been rereading all of Sarah Waters' stuff. So I reread, um, the Little Stranger, and I reread uh, Tipping the Velvet, which is her first book, which I really loved, and uh, the one I had not read of hers, which was Affinity. Um, and that was very good as well. So I was kind of doing a reread of Sarah Waters's stuff, um, and some nonfiction, uh, mostly. Uh, it's actually a couple books that I bought when I was in China and Tibet to do some research for Guardian. So I've been doing mostly work research as well as mm -hmm. I, I'm, I have a couple of manuscripts I'm reading for uh, 
some of my author friends that I can't really talk about. But so nothing really published except for the Everlasting Rose and rereads of of books I've read before. Uh, any off mini recommendations? I watched Umbrella Academy, <laughs> which right there's it's so not much. Good. It's, it's not. not good. It's it is not, not good. good. Um, it really isn't. Like I, I was actually talking about this with some friends, and a lot of them were like, "No, it's good." I was like, "No, no, you're not hearing yeah. me. I loved it. I, I loved it, it. But, but it's but not it's good." Not good. And, like, <laughs> and they, you know, they were kind of astonished by that. But I stand by that. Um, I think there's some great things in it. I think there's some not great stuff in it. I think there's a lot of places where it just could have been so much better than it mm-hmm. is on on like a writing level like of course we're talking about things on the writing level because that's what we do at this podcast um but I feel like they could have done so much more and it is pretty tropey and it is pretty derivative and a lot of things in the comic book genre are tropey and derivative and that's fine tropes are great they exist for a reason um but there's a lot of stuff that's not great. But there's a lot of stuff that's wonderful too, and I love Klaus so much. Klaus, I love Klaus. Klaus. I can't remember. It's Klaus. Yes. I love Klaus and Five. Mm-hmm. I think Number Five is possibly my favorite character. I think he's so yeah. funny. Um, yeah. I there. It is exactly my aesthetic because I know I talked to some people who really hated Umbrella Academy because they're just like I don't get it, and I was like, well, it's a comic book adaptation and the aesthetic is you know it's not clearly set in any time period there are no cell phones there's a lot of anachronistic technology and they're like why and I was like just cause for aesthetic reasons it doesn't really matter it's an, it's an alternate universe where people have superpowers so who really cares um, yeah why are we nitpicking about this why are we nitpicking about this um, so but that aesthetic is something that does work for me uh, so mm-hmm. I didn't mind it is written, the original comic book series was written by Gerard Way, who's the yes. lead singer of My Chemical Romance, which I think it says exactly why this kind of thing is my aesthetic. Uh, I think the soundtrack is great. Like, really, the soundtrack okay. is so good. Um, there are other issues with it. Uh, a friend of mine pointed out that it employs some anti-Semitic tropes in it. And, yeah. and, I, and like I said, not all that great. However, I loved the family di- the family dynamics. Yes, I, anything for really dysfunctional families are mm-hmm. just always going to be my jam. I just I love it when people who are family, whether biological or chosen, uh, have some issues. I just <laughs> I love those I, kinds of stories, and it, and it, for me, it is also my camp. It, it has a lot of my weird campy sense of humor. Like, mm-hmm. my favorite scene is when Diego and Klaus are riding to the rescue in an ice cream truck, and the ice cream yes. truck plays Ride of the Valkyries. Valkyries. It's and so it's good. Not like, it's not like the score is playing it. No, no, no. The actual ice cream it's truck ice music cream is the Ride <laughs> of the Valkyries. Exactly. And I died. I was like, oh, this is exactly why I love this show. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, it, I've, I've heard, I, I did not, unfortunately, uh, catch the anti-Semitic 
tropes on my own, but once they were pointed out to me, it was like, yep, that's definitely there. That's definitely Um, there. A woman gets fridged, so, like, that happens. It's very Um, ableist, particularly with mental health. Yeah, like, there's a lot. And and the thing is, too, I I think the thing that keeps it from greatness, too... Um, aside from the problematic aspects of it are that the, the characters, um, have the ability to be so much more developed than some of them are. Some of them are very well developed and those are kind of our favorites. Yeah. And then Klaus. (laughs) And then some of them are not, or if they are developed, they're developed much too late in the show where you finally get all these big, you know, developments and reveals that had they been shown to us earlier would have led to so much more character growth and development than to just kind of dump things at the very end. And some things I understand why, you know, you keep the reveal until the last minute, but it was really uneven in terms of which characters got rich, complicated characterizations Mm -hmm. and which characters were stock like people, Lucy. <laughs> <So>, oh God, <laughs> the worst, the worst. worst. And and that that guy too. Like that character is the trope of the like like good like capital G guy. He's, he's the Freddy of the Scooby Gang. Is exactly who he yeah. is. Yeah, and that's a hard role to play anyway because who. Can't like you're the leader and you're handsome and you're strong and you're brave and it's like unless you're Chris Evans playing Captain America it's pretty hard it's like the only exception um and so it's it's a tough thing to deal with anyway with a character in that role and then they really don't give him anything to work with (laughs) no But I watched it. Uh, I did enjoy it, despite its many flaws. Um, So that was an off-menu recommendation. Um, I've gotten really into crossword puzzles. (laughs) I'm, I'm, like, at the point now where I can reliably, reliably solve an easy level crossword puzzle in under eight minutes. And now I'm working through, like, finishing the medium and the hard ones. <laughs> but it feels like an accomplishment to me. We recently renewed our subscription to the New York Times, um, which is what got me started into it. And now I've got all these apps for crossword puzzles and things. But, yeah, I don't know. Anything else other than Umbrella Academy on your end? Uh, aside from Umbrella Academy, have I been watching anything else? Um, oh, I watched Joda Akbar, which is, I think it's a Bollywood movie, um, with Ashwara Rai and Hrithik Roshan based, it's based on, um, a, a, a real person of the, I think the leader of the Mughal empire in India. And the backstory is kind of given in the movie. It's Muslim. It's a, their Muslim conquerors actually kind of from the Persian area. But this particular ruler was actually the first that was born in Indians on Indian soil, what they called Hindustan at the time. Um, and he married, so he's Muslim and he married a Hindu princess. And so it's kind of like a love story between the two of them. 
It's a three hour long epic. It is gorgeous to look at. Um, and I really enjoyed it. And I didn't realize it was like three hours long, but I just started it one afternoon and I got totally sucked into watching the whole thing. Um, aside from Joda Akbar, what else have I seen? Oh, I watched Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I'm waiting to see. Where did you watch it? How? It's on iTunes. So we. It's on iTunes? It's on All iTunes. Right. It is so... I've been waiting for it to hit. Oh my god, it is so good. I, 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 I was, I'm like kicking myself for sleeping on this because I was like, oh my god, it's so, it's so good. I can't, I can't, like, I can't even begin to describe how good this was. Um, the animation style is really phenomenal. But more than that, it just really, like, I cried. Of course I cried. Um, it's just, it's so great, and especially if you're a fan of the Spider-Man comics, um, which I didn't read until I was much older, and I'm not really deeply into the Spider-Man mythos. Um, but uh, there are little nods here and there of different, and of course there are different iterations of Spider-Man that you see because it's kind of a multiverse story. Oh, it's so good. The main character is Miles, is this particular main Spider-Man is Miles Morales. Um, so good. The music is great. The animation is great. Oh, I, I loved it. So I highly, highly, highly recommend Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um, so that's pretty much it on my end. Is there anything else we'd like to wrap up before we move on? That's all for this week. Next time, we'll be continuing our deep dive into children's publishing series uh, with the difference between young adult and adult. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast and it sparks joy for me. <laughs> if you want more pub call goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcall.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also visit us on Patreon at Publishing Crawl and join our lovely patrons in supporting the upkeep of this podcast. We would not be able to do this without you. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter and Instagram, or my website at sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram, or my rarely updated website these days, penandparsley.com. Um, our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Contagion, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or use the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Patrons also have access to a suggestion box where they can volunteer topics they would like us to discuss in future episodes. And speaking of future episodes, we are going to be coming up soon on our first quarterly uh, query critique show that we do here on the podcast. So if you'd like to have your query read aloud and critiqued on this podcast, then you should email them to us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com. And in the subject line, please put query critique. Uh, so I think that's it. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs>